there are so many times when a quarterback makes a throw and the throw for, and, and from the side view, it's like, how the fuck did he make that throw? What yeah. did he see? And yeah. then you look at it and then you look at it from the back view and you're like, oh, actually this changes everything. I get yes. what the quarterback thought. So totally. you're not even you're not even like watching the product. It's stupid. Yeah. I don't like, understand like, the side view. It's so silly. Like obviously Madden, like, you know, ever since the the invention of Madden, it's like, oh yeah, clearly I should be looking at this from behind the play so I can see everything develop, right? But like we're just like literally watching it from the side and can see nothing. Like it's just like, yeah, he's throwing it maybe someone's open maybe it's not we'll follow the ball's trajectory and then we'll find find out out. soon yeah it's like (laughs) it's so silly this is hot hand theory this is a podcast where we talk about the nba and break things down from an analytical perspective i'm your co-host xj as always he is my brilliant co-host jeff Jeff, a lot has happened since our last episode of Hot Hand Theory. The Knicks, there's a lot to talk about as far as the Knicks. Um, I, normally on these episodes, I throw it to you, my brilliant co-host Jeff, as, as everyone knows. I, I normally throw it to you first to kind of initiate the conversation, to see where your mind's at. This On this ninth episode of Hot Hand Theory, I think we're going to switch things up. I'm going to start by talking about a couple things on my mind and let you react to, to what I'm saying. So the reason I wanted to start is just, I wanted to point out something. We are recording this the day after the Knicks and Lakers game, um, you know, a big victory for the Knicks over the Los Angeles Lakers. The Knicks offense has been tremendous of late, but their defense in the games prior to the Lakers game, I will say, has been horrible. And, you know, the reason I wanted to start talking is because I know the easy thing to do would be to blame it on the loss of Mitchell Robinson. Um, But I really believe that this started while Mitch was in there. And I also think that some of the narrative around, you know, you know, look how much they need Mitch. Like, I kind of knew that that would happen because I could see the, the the defensive slide and... I don't see why it wouldn't continue after losing one of the better defender, the best center defenders in the NBA. Um, But I noticed the defense slipping and then Mitch got hurt. And I said, you know, watch, we're going to rewrite this thing and talk about how the defensive struggles are really exclusively because Mitch Robinson is out. But if we look at Mitch's last three games before he got injured, um, you know, they had an okay defensive performance against Toronto. And, but you know that's not a good that's not a good offensive team at all. <laughs> um, was that the on, game? Was that the game in Toronto? Yeah, on December first. I'm talking. I'm okay. going all the way back not, to the not not not, not no, the no, home no, game. no 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 no. no <laughs> not, I was like, that's okay. Huh? No, <laughs> not not the recent game against Toronto. No, the the, yeah. the first one. Um, it was decent, but you know that team is not a good offense. So the, the it really, you know, on on balance, it wasn't great. Then they played two great offenses probably we're seeing two of the best offenses in the NBA, Milwaukee and Boston, and they had their two worst defensive performances of the year back-to-back up until the Clippers game this past weekend. So, yes, those were elite offenses, but guess what? Over the past two weeks, the Clippers have been the best offense in the entire league, and we know what Phoenix can do. Phoenix is, is, is potent and can really put up big numbers against anyone at any given night. In my opinion, Isaiah Harnstein... Well, this part's not my opinion. Isaiah Hardenstein has a better defensive on-off than Mitchell Robinson. He still has a better e- defensive EPM than, than Mitchell Robinson. 
and we've only gotten to see him operate in a small sample of lineups with the starters. So I am just not for drawing conclusions about, you know, look, Mitch was our defense. Hardenstein can't hack it. Obviously, I'm not saying that you're saying this, Jeff, but just speaking to this narrative. Um, and, I'm, and I want to be clear. I'm not saying that iHeart is a better defensive five than Mitch by any means, you know, but I do think he can hold his own. There are a lot of other defensive issues going on, starting with Jericho Sims in the starting lineup, who we will talk about. Emmanuel quickly averaging around 20 minutes per game in the five games prior to the Knicks win over the Lakers. I think those things have a lot more to do with the defensive struggles. And guess what else? This is the last thing I want to say before I throw it over to you. Guess which team has been the fourth best offense in the NBA over the last two weeks? After the Clippers, the aforementioned Clippers, the Bucks, and the Celtics. The New York Knicks. And while, you know, and that's that's despite they're missing a bunch of three-pointers over multiple games. They shot 35% from three on the entire West Coast trip, the four-game West Coast trip. And it's only that high because Brunson shot nine of nine in that one game. So, it, you know, like that kind of skews it a little bit. So I just wanted to start by talking about that. I think that that's like the biggest thing that has been on my mind is the defensive struggles, the offensive kind of excellence over this West Coast trip. And... Just just the, that dynamic that I that is he going on. If you have anything to say to react to that, you can do that. Or you can just go where, where you, wherever you want to go. We, we flow here on Hot Hand Theory. So up to you. Yeah, and it's good to know that I have your permission to talk about what I want. <laughs> well, because <laughs> um, I started first. No. I, 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 I grant you permission to go in whatever direction thank you, you thank want. Thank you. I know, you're, I know, I know that you, uh, you do a good job of listening. So or what did you say last week? Uh, well heard by job. me. Well, well heard by you. Yes, things yeah. are typically uh-huh. well heard by me. That's correct. Yes, there it is. Um, so the first thing I want to say is I think that the Knicks' defensive woes have been hugely and artificially extrapolated by Jericho Sims being the starting center. I think that it'll pretty much never look as bad as it did during these couple of weeks with Jericho Sims starting at center. I understand Tibbs not wanting to fudge with the rotations. But being so anal about keeping your rotations that you end up with an out-of-the-rotation player playing 100% of his minutes against opposing starting fives just is – it doesn't make any sense. Um, Especially if you want Hartenstein still playing big minutes and you don't sub-substitute liberally, the result is a big man in Isaiah Hartenstein who – has never averaged more than 25 minutes a game in his entire career playing 16 to 20 minute stretches consecutively in halves. So he has to be getting winded at the end of these stretches. It just makes way more sense for Hardenstein to start Sims to play, you know, a nice six to eight minute stretch with the bench unit and then Hardenstein to close. I, I, I don't really understand why Tibbs has been, so reluctant to just flip that around. That seems like an easy switch to me. Um, but I think the bigger problem is something um, Ariel, uh, anybody, or most people listening to this probably know who that is on Twitter. Um, Ariel Pacheco, he's great, great Knicks content creator, does a lot of film work. Um, he pointed out that with the new lineup, with DiVincenzo joining the starting lineup, the Knicks at least three best defenders all come off the bench right now with Mitchell Robinson hurt. Um, Hart, Quickly, and Grimes all come off the bench together. That's really tough, and I can't imagine that too many other teams do that 
ha- have that skewed a balance. Um, there's just you're putting a lot of pressure on guys in the starting lineup who already have a burden on the other side of the ball. You know, uh, Brunson and Randall carry a huge, huge usage offensively. RJ Barrett's right there with them. Dante DiVincenzo is basically the only shooter. And we've, we've seen, he's not like Quentin Grimes. He's out there to, he's not going to disappear in this offense. You know, like he's, he's going to shoot when he gets the ball, he's going to move. And he's a good defender. He's, you know, active in passing lanes. He's aggressive. He takes chances. Is he a guy that you can just throw at the point of attack and, you know, have him shut down the other guy? Is he a guy like quickly or Hart who can, who's going to roam or excuse me, who's going to like stun and going to cover for other guys' mistakes? I, I don't see him as that much uh, as that type of defender, at least to the degree they are. Um, so I think that has also artificially compounded the Knicks defensive woes. I think once Tibbs starts playing more balanced lineups and Jericho Sims stops playing 15 minutes a night against opposing starters, I think you're going to see the Knicks defensive rating normalize. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with all of that. Uh, to add specific context, so Jericho Sims, prior to his injury in the Lakers game, um, in 127 possessions with the starting lineup, he had a minus 15.9 plus minus, good for third percentile in the NBA. Um, the Knicks were giving up 138 points per 100 possessions, which would be good for the zeroth percentile in the NBA. I don't even know if that's a word. Uh, including a 61% defensive rebound percentage, 61.1% effective field goal percentage, and essentially not generating any turnovers with an 8.5 defensive turnover rate. All of those are either zeroth or first percentile in the NBA. Just completely, completely untenable and just not just just you're setting yourself up for complete failure if you're having throwing out a, a lineup that's producing those kinds of results. It's, it's difficult to imagine winning any games where you have that lineup on the court for any amount of time. Just in terms of it's a very small sample, but that's how things have gone. So and to, I, to, to, to yeah. juxtapose to just to juxtapose that for a second on the other end of the spectrum, the trio of Hart, Grimes, and Quickly have 120.4 offensive rating and 104.9 defensive rating. They're just absolutely demolishing. That's incredible. Teams. Yeah. Um, and look, we have a a large enough sample size since Hart was traded to the Knicks last season that you know basically whenever you pair quickly with a wing defender you trust the Knicks defense is going to be really good. And the team is going to be really good. Um, go back to last season, uh, the quad, the God, what did we decide? Was it court quartet? The quartet of quartet. Brunson quickly Grimes Randall plus 7.4 net rating uh, Brunson quickly heart Randall plus 11.5 net rating this season. Brunson quickly RJ uh, Randall plus 34.6 net rating. Uh, Brunson quickly heart Randall plus 27.6 net rating. So look, I people probably are well past sick of me talking about this guy, but to me, it just comes down to quickly and pairing him with a wing defender. I, I think any lineup that has quickly roaming off the ball and has somebody on the ball that you trust is going to at least tread water defensively. There's just too much evidence that of 
for of that being true for it to not be true. Um, and I think that was one of the most encouraging things to me about last night's game because against the Lakers, because Hart, I, I don't know if he got hurt. I know some people said he went back to the locker room, but we know, we know for a fact that if you pair Hart with quickly and then you surround them with Brunson and Randall, that's going to work. That's that, that lineup works. It'll work forever. It's just, it's so synergetic. And I think something the impact data has showed us is that the difference between RJ Barrett and Josh Hart in that lineup is that RJ Barrett didn't last season fully embrace the role that's required to be the small forward in that lineup. Because especially down the stretch of games, when the games slow down, you have the offense running through Brunson. Randall is very clearly the second option. There's not going to be a ton of movement off the ball. It's going to grind to a halt. And you need to play off the ball. You need to move a little bit. You need to screen and you need to shoot. And then on the other end of the court, they don't want Brunson or quickly being that main primary of attack guy. They want a third player to be taking the opposing team's best guard so that first of all, Brunson is actually hidden and then quickly serves as that free safety. That is the ideal role. And so when quickly is sharing the, the court with Hart. When Hart is able to do that, when he's navigating screens well, when he's a force at the point of attack, he raises Quickly's defensive impact by letting Quickly play his ideal role, a role he's very good at. And if you rewatch last night's game, Tibbs said to RJ Barrett, "Look, I know you don't have a good, sh- you're, you don't have a going shooting right now, but I'm going to stick you on D'Angelo Russell. I'm going to stick you on Austin Reeves. These smaller guards who, frankly, Quickly kind of struggled with a bit last night. At least Austin Reeves he struggled with." And R.J. Barrett, until that foul on Austin Reeves that got him pulled with 29 seconds left, from about seven or eight minutes all the way down to the 30-second mark, he thrived on the ball. And you it let quickly play off the ball. And I think that that you saw you saw proof of the concept that hey, R.J. can work in this role at that small forward in that small forward role as well. He can play on the ball. He can raise quickly's defensive impact by letting him play his ideal defensive role. And I think Knicks fans should be super encouraged by what they saw down the stretch because defensively it 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 was up to the challenge against a very good team. So I think that's an awesome dynamic that you're pointing out. And I totally agree that it exists. I guess for me, it's like Josh Hart does play that role extremely well. And I think, and I don't have the, I didn't look at the lineup data ahead of time, but I think that lineup with Brunson, Quickly, Hart, Randall, and either Mitch or Hardenstein is probably the Knicks' best lineup when you look at the total number of possessions, balancing that out versus, you know, their their on-off performance. I don't know if... Do you think that, and, and I'm just switching to asking you questions now because I, I think this is such a good thing that you hit on. Do you think that that is replicable with those same guys but swapping out Hart for R.J. Barrett? Do you think that that's something that we could see? Because we haven't seen it to this point, and I, I feel dubious about that, I'll say, but you seem to be encouraged by what we saw last night. So do you think that that's something that could still happen? For sure. Um, I think that any of, I actually think that that position is the most fungible. I think that Grimes could fill that role. I wish we'd see that lineup more because I actually think the Grimes at the small forward with uh, Brunson quickly and Randall has the highest ceiling. 
uh, because Grimes is the best shooter. So I, I wish we, we could see that more. But regarding just specifically RJ versus Hart, I do think with how RJ is defending this season, I've noticed stuff on the film, I think he can fill in for Josh Hart in that role. I know there are Knicks fans out there that are laughing at this premise that like, oh my God, like how how degrading is this to RJ Barrett? Like, can he fill in for Josh Hart? But you have to understand that basketball is about more than individual skill sets. It's about filling a role in certain lineups. Like that's that's what impact data represents. It's how well do you fill the role that you're being asked to fill? And like it or not, you know, for any of you out there who truly believe that RJ Barrett can be, you know, a primary hub, a second, a really good second option, that's never going to be his role on this team, at least right now. At least with, I mean, Julius Randle is playing like a top 15 offensive player. He's been incredible recently. Everybody knows what, everybody agrees Jalen Brunson's an, like, is an awesome offensive player. If you're going to be, if you're going to thrive, with those guys, you have to take a different role, even RJ Barrett. Um, and I do think that when you watch the film defensively, he has shown some things that should encourage you um, and should make you believe that he can fill the Josh Hart role. I've especially loved his screen navigation. This is just going to be a quick film aside. He has this new technique for navigating screens where when he anticipates a screen coming, he kind of hops forward to to fully – he doesn't even let the guy screen him. Um, it's a really advanced move that not many people do, and it mitigates his slow-footedness, for lack of a better word. Uh, you know, you picture Grimes or quickly getting around a screen. They're mostly anticipating and then using their speed to skirt around it. RJ doesn't have that. So he's using other tricks in the bag to get around it. And there was a specific possession last night where D'Angelo Russell tried to shoot a pull up three going around a screen. And I think he expected RJ to die on the screen, but RJ anticipated it and contested from the side. It led to a miss and then a Jalen Brunson basket on the other end to push the lead to like seven or 10. Those are the types of things that you just need to see. That's how you impact the game without the ball in your hands. Um, do I think that he can be as consistently good in that role as Josh Hart? No, I don't because it's a role that was pretty much made for Josh Hart. But I do think that RJ actually has a higher ceiling as an on-ball defender due to his size. I do think that some of these matchups we've seen recently, whether it's Devin Booker, um, even Kawhi Leonard, I, I do think that I would rather have RJ at his best than Josh Hart at his best in those matchups. So... I think it's a little deeper than the lineup data would tell you or a little bit more nuanced than the lineup data would, would tell you. And I do think that RJ can replicate what Hart does with that trio of players. Yeah. All that's really interesting. And, and obviously I, I, I very much trust your, your film eye on that. So that that's a really interesting spot that I'll look for in terms of RJ's screen navigation improvements and, and the different stylistic uh, approaches that he's taking this year. I guess to so I I, I looked at the at the yeah, I know you said it goes beyond the lineup data I, I looked at the lineup data really quick just uh, the two man pairing of quickly and RJ has a really good defensive uh, defensive rating one oh eight point nine which would be ninetieth percentile in the NBA so so that pairing has worked really well obviously as we know quickly has kind of a good if you look at two man pairings quickly at anyone essentially the the, the defensive rating is good. 
at the same time, I feel and I have felt like RJ's defense has just been inconsistent and and constantly, you know, when I'm asked, actually, we did a a, a watch along with the KFS uh, casual Friday crew um, for the Lakers game and Mensa, who, you know, is a big RJ supporter asked me he, or he asked us, he's like, you know, how do you guys feel about RJ's performance tonight? And I feel like anytime I'm asked that, my answer is almost always the same. It's always uneven. Like, uh, I, I always feel that way about his performance. I don't feel like it's, he's, I mean, there's a few times, especially early in the season where it's like, uh, he's been great tonight, but at least over the last large sample of games, it just feels like there's an inconsistency to it. And I'm worried that that's like less of a aberration and more of reflective of the kind of player that he is. And that's what I'm concerned about. So I think it's less likely, I'm less likely to feel that way about a Josh Hart performance on both ends, I will say. It doesn't feel like it's inconsistent. It feels like he's always there. He's kind of always in the right spot, more or less. Like he's playing tough defense. You know, maybe he wins and loses some of the battles that he has going on in the court, but it's just kind of always there. He's just, he's been solid. He's solid. I don't always feel that way with RJ. And something that's interesting, and, you know, I, I'd love to hear your opinion on. We, we talk about EPM estimate plus minus here. Uh, his defensive EPM has consistently kind of dropped uh, in, in, in almost a linear way, I will say, at least from the beginning of the season. You know, we knew we know his offensive EPM was through the roof. I would argue due almost not entirely, but in large part to his unbelievable shooting. Started out shooting 50 percent for an extended period of time is down to 33 percent from three. Um, so his offensive, but his offensive EPM has still maintained. He still is having a really clear, solid, positive impact on the offensive end. Defensively, it has just continued to go down. Like again, like I said, in almost a linear way, he's down to 50th percentile in the NBA. Started out uh, much higher than that earlier in the season, and I just feel like there's the consistency is not there, and that's what I'm concerned about. I think that what I what I appreciate is that. You have consistency from Josh Hart. You have consistency from Emmanuel Quickly. When I talk about sample sizes, the reason I I think that we look at sample sizes is because it takes a certain number of possessions of a consistent performance to see some of those numbers start to balance out. Let's just think about an example, a random example. Um, let, like, let's say, remember how Shane Battier used to do this thing? I, I don't think it worked, but where he would put his hands in the, in the face of the the shooter in, in order to try to affect his vision. And, and I don't think it was effective at all. I, I just remember him doing it with Kobe a lot. But let's say that was an effective technique. Let's say Battier did it, you know, you know, 50 times over the beginning of the season and that player just happened to be hot that he was guarding or you know let's say it affects your percentages maybe two percent three percent let's say something like that it affects your shooting percentages by three percent but the players that he was guarding early in the season they happen to be hot they made those shots anyway and then you look at the impact data and you're like well baddie's not really affecting the defense very much like it's not he's not having the impact that he normally does but then you ha- you add another, let's say, 200 instances of that, 400 instances of that, 500 instances of that. Then we see the real effect start to take place, but it takes a large number of, of instances to see what the actual true level uh, of that kind of defensive technique is in terms of its impact. And so to me, it's like, Batty is going to have to do that every time 
for 500 instances before we start to see the impact of that actually happening. If he does it occasionally, we almost will never know what the true level of that of that defensive technique is. So that's that's kind of my issue with the inconsistency from RJ. Like he may have a really good defensive possession and we'll see him get a stop, but if he's not doing it consistently, Overall, his impact is going to be low, and I think that that's what I've seen from him, at least over the very early part of his career, and 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 even still, you know, going now that he's a he's pretty much a veteran in the NBA. Whereas Josh Hart, he's kind of always there. Emmanuel Quickly is always there. He's always doing the things that those two players are always doing the things that they do to impact the defensive end. They're always doing those things, like almost every single possession, possession after possession, whether it works or not, because it's not about it working in any individual instance. It's it's about it's working over a large number of instances, and you just have to be consistent in order to have that impact moving forward. So that's just like a long-winded way of me pointing out that I'm concerned about the the consistency of R.J. Barrett and what can he get there to the point where he's doing the things that he does well every single time even when they don't work, because it's not about it working right now. It's about it working over, you know, a bunch of, of different instances of that thing that he's doing. Um, yeah. So that, that, that's, that's what I would ask you. Yeah. I could, I could only speak to what he's done so far this season. And I do think that he's been pretty consistently impactful on the defensive end of the court. Um, I don't think there's been too much volatility on that side. In fact, I'd argue that quickly has actually been the more volatile defender on the court this year. Um, at least relative to what we know he can do. I think that quickly's set the standard so high last season that I'm probably unfairly holding him to too high a standard, but I do think that he's been, he's taken a step back in terms of what he's done On the ball, I don't think he's been as consistent navigating screens. I think he can do both those things better. I Look, you saw him last night. It was actually jarring. You saw him lock in when the game got close down the stretch. He did not miss a stunt or a help or a rotation. Austin Reeves actually got an and one, um, a bullshit and one, a call that quickly and RJ have not gotten all season where you force the contact and get a shot up. Yeah, that was a bad call. Yeah. fucking nonsense and one yeah um but mike breen actually pointed out on the broadcast that quickly was in a spot he had no business being in if quickly wasn't completely uh, locked in that's a wide open austin reeves three and and i invite anybody to go watch that clip that quick austin reeves is not quickly's man that was a scramble where quickly showed on the other side of the court and then made a random rotation to the weak side corner and found Austin Reeves by himself. That was an elite help. And it was jarring because he was doing that every quarter of every game last season. Like when he was locked in for the back half of the season, he set the bar so incredibly high. So is it fair to expect him to do that all the time for his whole career? Maybe not. It probably takes an immense amount of effort and he's putting more effort in on the offensive side of the ball this season. But I do think defensively he's actually been a little bit more inconsistent than RJ Barrett, who for better or for worse, you know, there are things he's just not going to be good at. He doesn't physically have the tools for, but within the realm of what we can expect for RJ Barrett from RJ Barrett defensively, I actually think there has been that consistency that you're talking about through 26 games. 
That, that's really interesting and and it, it, it makes me think of another point which is sort of tangential but yeah i think that's helpful to hear that your perspective on the consistency so far this season i mean the thing that i was thinking about with quickly is uh early on in the in the lifetime of hot hand theory you asked me if i thought emmanuel quickly would ever have a higher impact uh overall impact when we look at impact metrics like epm or lebron um than he had last year and I said, yeah, of course, like I would, I would give, odd, I would give really good odds on that happening. And the reason I said that is because I said, well, look, look at last year, his defensive impact was, you know, extremely high and in, in the top 10 percentile in the NBA and his offensive impact was relatively lower. And we've seen him be in the top like 15 percentile of the NBA in offensive impact. So all he needs to do is not improve, not improve as a player, not improve as an offensive player, not improve as a defensive player, be the same guy, but just do both in the same season. And then we already see him reach that. That would be an all-star level player if he did that. Now, what we're noticing, at least in what you're talking about and, and what I've also noticed this season is that maybe it's harder to do both <laughs> than it seems. <laughs> um, maybe it's not as simple as, hey, let me just do both of these things at all times on the court. And I mean, we see that a ton. We see that a ton when guys' offensive load increases, their defense tends to suffer. And it just seems to be a consistent theme. Um, I mean, we've seen it from Jalen Brunson. We've seen it from we see it from everyone really from all players um, Kobe Kobe White is in the fourth percentile in defensive EPM this year after being I think in he he was in he was really high last season and the film backed it up his his defense was really good last season Zach Levine gets hurt everybody's talking finally talking about the Kobe White breakout and his defense has just fallen off a cliff which which is fine by the way he's a young player trying to fit I'm this is not a critique of Kobe White if you follow hot hand theory on Twitter I love we we love Kobe White. He's there. It's hard for a young guy to show the defense that he showed last season, and then wake up this season and show the offense that he is now showing. I do believe he's going to be able to put it put it together. My point is to I'm trying to reinforce XJ's point that these guys aren't you know freaking Sims on a computer. They're human, and you can't just combine like oh you did defense one year and you did offense. Let's just do them both at the same time especially for a 23 year old that's it's going to take a little bit more time to figure that out and piece it together. Yeah, exactly. And and I think I mean the thing that it brings to mind and obviously we're we're, we're talking Knicks right now, but the thing that brings to mind is is SGA who has essentially been the best offensive and best defensive player at least in the conversation um has been the best offensive and defensive player in the NBA like at the same time, which is mind-blowing. Like those are things that that's the kind of thing that, you know, You'll see a Kawhi Leonard do or uh, Joel Embiid do. Like th th those are that's just really kind of unbelievable. But at the same time, yeah, I think I think there's something more. Uh, you know, Giannis is another player that might might do something like that. But yeah, I think that that is something that is more complicated than maybe I've given it credit for, and something to watch out for because I agree. I mean, we've seen Quickly's offense has been really good this year on balance, I would say, but you know, his defense has not been up to his, his typical standard. Um, yeah, I, that, 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 that's all I wanted to mention about. I, is there anything else that, that came to mind that you wanted to talk about as far as the, there's, there's another topic that I want to bring up, but I wanted to, you know, I started off the conversation, so I would like <laughs> to allow you the floor to, <laughs> to, to go whichever direction you want to go.
Again, double appreciate that. Um, <laughs> do, do you think that? Do you think that last night represented a changing in the tide for the Knicks from a rotation standpoint, or do you think it was just quickly playing well? Let's ride it. Like Tibbs is just whatever for all his pros, all his cons. He's he's kind of a strange. You you can never you can never get pin him down and and figure out what's going through his head. So so what do you think? the Knicks are thinking going forward. So, so when you say changing of the tide, do you mean specifically with regard to quickly um, who I mentioned had, was, was hovering around 20 minutes per game for the five games prior to the Los Angeles Lakers game. And then in the Lakers game played 30 minutes, I believe it was 30 minutes. Um, so do you mean with regard specifically to quickly, or do you mean with regard to the rotations that we saw Harnstein, play, I mean, Harnstein's going to play big minutes regardless, I think, moving forward. But Harnstein may be starting, quickly playing more minutes, a reduced role for Grimes, maybe DiVincenzo. Um, those are some of the, the, the highlights, I think, for me as far as like the... the, the and the and uh, Rand- Randall got some run with the bench. And Randall's run with the bench, which I don't like. And I and I would, you know, I'd be happy to talk about that as well. But, but Why don't um, you like it? So, I mean, we, it's something we talked about uh, two episodes ago, maybe. I, I think that when Randall's out there with the bench, it is, I think he believes it is Randall and the bench. And it means feed me, run the offense through me. I do everything. Brunson's not out here, who's the only guy I will defer to in, in any way. And it's time to give Randall the ball. It's time for Randall to eat. Like, I think that that's how he views it. And it seems to go that way. I mean, this this is a super minor thing, and 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 maybe people are gonna say I'm 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 caping for Emmanuel quickly here, but I Emmanuel quickly had a really terrible turnover, and then he he compounded it by having a foul as well. It was a really awful pass that he just threw to Randall, who was standing directly next to him, throws it into the passing lane. It, uh, it ends up being a turnover and a foul on and one on the other end transition. I feel like quickly doesn't throw that pass. And only throws that pass because Randall is essentially like demanding the ball. And I just don't think that's a nor- like, I don't think that was, I think the reason was a turnover is because it wasn't a cor- comfortable or normal play for quickly. I don't think that's a pass he'd want to make. I think he probably would want to initiate the offense, maybe start with a uh, screen roll, have Randall space out. And under that circumstance, it was just like, no, Randall's on the wing. Give Randall the ball. Like it's you, you're your bench guys. You are all bench guys. And I am the offensive superstar. And Randall has played amazingly on the offensive end. But I think that what I love about the bench is that when those guys are out there and let's say RJ instead of Randall, the ball just flows. It's like there's the ball doesn't stick. There's no one guy kind of taking over and running the show. I mean, RJ does use his possessions. He uses his number of possessions occasionally, but for the most part, he's just one of the guys and they're flowing into pick and rolls. There's a lot of action going on. There's transition. The defense is humming. I think everything flows really well. I think it just, it, it works on both ends. And I, and, and that's my favorite line and not the best lineup that the Knicks have, but my favorite lineup um, that the Knicks have, um, you know, whether it's, it's, it's quickly DiVincenzo, RJ, Hartenstein and Josh Hart. I think that that's just like a really fun lineup to watch and and works really well on both ends. But I think when Randall's out there, it's just, it changes the dynamic too much. And I think it kind of worked last night, but it's not something I want to see consistently moving forward. I think it just hurts the performance of all of those players. 
So that's that that's my perspective. And I, I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. I think we saw that lineup as well. And if I felt the same way, uh, it's hard for me to quantify it. Like we're gonna have to see what the the numbers look like with those lineups moving forward. I will say, Emmanuel quickly. Obviously, you look at his two man pairing with with uh, Brunson, and it's it's incredible. You look at his three man pairing with quickly Randall and Brunson, and it's really good. You look at his pairing with quick, quickly Randall without Brunson, and it's not very good. It's like I don't, I don't think it's like terrible. It's probably just like fiftieth percentile or something like that. Um, but it's just something that I'm, I'm monitoring because I think the dynamic does change when you have Randall on the court and Brunson on the court. Then you have someone who Randall knows he defers to it, you know, in, in some stages. He respects Brunson enough as an offensive threat that you know Brunson's going to get his his usage when you have Randall on the court and no Brunson I think it really changes the, the the entire dynamic so I I'm not a huge fan of that I don't I I would not like to see it more I'm I, we may see it more moving forward but it's not it's not something I, I I really am a huge fan of based on these observations that I'm making that you know maybe the data will show eventually that it's it, it it doesn't matter they play well Randall is able to orchestrate enough and the defense is able to hold up so maybe it won't matter, but I, I, at least right now, I'm not a fan. So, you know, I think you I think you disrespect me if I didn't keep you honest here. So I'm just you know, and for the sake of transparency, I'm oh for sure, I, please do. I, you know, I I pulled up the Wowie data mm-hmm. with Julius Randle and Emmanuel quickly on the court and Jalen Brunson on the off the court. The Knicks net rating is plus seven point seven per hundred possessions. With Jalen Brunson and Emmanuel quickly on the court, but Julius Randle off the court, it's plus 4.25 per 100 possessions. Um, what what, what site are you looking at? PVP. Um, okay, I'm looking at, just real quick, just real quick to clarify. So I'm looking at cleaning the glass. On court, quickly and Randall. Off court, Jalen Brunson. Mm-hmm. The differential is plus 0.8 in 174 possessions, which would be 52nd percentile in the NBA. So How many that, minutes? Does it say how it doesn't minutes? do by it doesn't go by minutes. It goes by possessions. Okay. So and 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 so that this is 174 possessions. Like I said, plus 0.8 differential. The offensive is 116 offensive rating. 116. The defensive rating is 115. Um, effective field goal percentage from the offense 53.1 percent, which is awful. Um, turnover rate's pretty high. There, it doesn't. It doesn't look good at all so i that's really interesting that the 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 data is so different across these sites i know cleaning the glass filters out garbage time correct but i can't imagine it's that big a difference um i don't i mean obviously we both watch every knicks game there would have to be a pretty liberal definition of garbage time to have that big a discrepancy especially since it's not like quickly and randall are out there playing a ton of garbage time with yeah, exactly brunson. yeah yeah so, right. <laughs> so in fact I, in, fa- in fact given that brunson's played every game this season i would i would argue that they've probably played zero minutes of garbage time without jalen brunson yeah jalen brunson has fig- closed every so we got to figure out <laughs> We got to figure out why there's such a discrepancy, but um, that's the data that I looked at last night and it's consistent this morning um, because I, that's, that's an observation that I was making. So yeah, really I mean, interesting. look, PV, PVP has it as um, 117.92 offensive rating, 110.22 defensive rating for Randall and quickly on Brunson off. And then it has 120 offensive rating for Brunson and quickly on 
but 116 defensive rating. Um, so the net's a little bit smaller. Uh, but let's just, you know, I, I look, I wasn't doing that as an, uh, a gotcha. I was just, you know, trying to be <laughs> no, transparent with stats. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's, let's, you know, discuss it more from a non analytical perspective and just try to break down what's happening here. I want to, uh, start by saying whatever Tibbs did last night. And I get that there were people who were saying like, Oh, he was just trying to match his minutes with LeBron James's minutes. Randall, the, if this is the new rotation, Randall can't just be playing the first 18 minutes of halves. Like that's not a sustainable method. And so I want to say that everything I'm about to say assumes that if Randall's going to get the RJ bench minutes, it assumes a normal rotation. Like Randall is now coming out, you know, halfway through the first and he's starting the second quarter with the quote unquote bench unit. The thing that I like about it is I actually I think that Randall will grow to defer a bit more um with it and I think that quickly and heart elevate Randall's strengths and that look I if you look across the four years that quickly's played with Randall quickly is the only player who's been a positive with Randall all four seasons I think for whatever personality clashes they have you know randall almost killed quickly in orlando last season i do think that there's a synergy between the two players i think you see you know when quickly is dribbling the ball up the court he's kind of always pointing randall into position and he's he's thinking how can i you know get this guy going how can i get him to his spots and when randall's playing the way he is playing right now i think there is a justification for maybe not it turning into the full Julius Randle show, like just fully heliocentric, but I do think it is okay that he becomes the number one option. And I think the Knicks are actually better off long-term when Randall's playing this way. If one of him or Brunson is on the court at all times, because they are both individually elite number one options for an offense. And by forcing them to play the majority of their minutes together, you get this this diminishing returns. I think the impact data shows us that. You know, I'm gonna may, maybe these stats are flawed. You know, so I, I guess I'm curious what cleaning the glass says. But PVP has Brunson and Randall on quickly off. The Knicks for the second straight season are losing those minutes. Like it for what the whole has been less than the sum of its parts, even when Brunson and Randall play together. And I think it is because you need that connectivity. You need role players to be next to outstanding number one options. I think the Knicks are better off with 48 minutes of that, as opposed to trying to pair them together for 40 minutes and then trying to taper or scrape together eight gritty minutes with them off the court together. That's never made much sense to me. Um, And if you look at, um, where is it? Here it is. Hart quickly and Randall this season plus 21.2 net rating. So it's worked like the, when when you pair Randall with those two guys, it works. Um, Yeah. Those are a couple jumbled thoughts, but I just think that I feel very strongly that the highest ceiling for this Knicks team is making sure that one of Brunson or Randall is on the court at all times when Randall is playing this way. Yeah. And, and, and just to say, so Hart, quickly and Brunson is also like plus 20 something points as well. I, 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 I totally hear what you're saying. I think, I think this is honestly, it, it's a great, 
conversation point because I think we've come to a place where there's only so much the data can tell us at this stage, right? Like these are all small samples. We're chopping up, you know, we're saying these two guys together, this guy not on. Um, who's actually causing the impact here? <laughs> like who is actually the one that is, 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 is responsible for the impact under these circumstances that we're describing and the on off data lineup data, you know, despite the disparities between multiple sites, like regardless, none of those things are just going to be able to tell us, you know, we're not going to be able to have that answer, um, by looking at the lineup data. So I, I hear what you're saying. I, I do like the idea of randall and brunson kind of being on the court essentially at all times i was concerned about this dynamic i do think that i do think that quickly is probably the glue here for all of it honestly um i think that any lineup that you are gonna throw out there whether it has brunson and randall on whether it has only brunson whether it has only randall um whether it has rj and Hart, i think you know, quickly is probably the primary glue. And then heart is the other glue guy. I think if we have quickly and heart on the court, like it's going to like, everything's going to be okay. Um, because those guys are such impactful, uh, off ball players, their impact doesn't come from their usage. As we always talk about their impact comes from all the other things that they do on the court. Obviously, you know, you mentioned quickly's defense hasn't been as consistent this year. I think it's improving. We're seeing some of that kind of linear trajectory with regard to his defensive impact. We're seeing that happen in a positive way. Whereas, you know, I mentioned RJ, we're seeing that kind of go down in, in a negative way. Um, so I really think it, to me, it comes down to, can you ma- mix and match the, the the lineups enough that you have a ton of quickly and Josh Hart on the court? And I just think that at the end of the day, to me, I'm not sure what works better. And I'm not really, you know, the biggest proponent of saying like, you need to do this, you know, Tibbs needs to do this. He needs to have this rotation, this lineup. I don't really feel like that in this case. I just feel like quickly needs to play more minutes and Josh Hart needs to play more minutes. And I think to me, when it comes down to it, you mentioned this kind of guard and wing defender dynamic where the wing can kind of take the on ball role. The guard takes the off ball role. Um, I think we see that on other teams work really well in Orlando. They have similar dynamics where they have, you know, really strong guard defenders, really strong wing defenders. We also see that in Minnesota, uh, that is like a really, I mean, obviously they have really strong defenders at every position, but Nikhil Alexander Walker. Yeah. I just want to say, were you, were you able to watch the, or I want to ask do you, were you able to watch the Timberwolves heat game last night? No, I didn't catch it. Look, if any, if you have any interest in watching a replay of a random basketball game, I could make an argument that that was the highest quality NBA game of the season. It was really, an, it was an incredible matchup, an incredible basketball game. Chris Finch has the Timberwolves playing just operating at such a high level and I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but we need to acknowledge that Rudy Gobert has just become one of the most underrated players in the NBA. Um, And if you rewatch that game, just watch Rudy Gobert. Watch what he does to Bam Adebayo and honestly the whole Heat offense down the stretch of that game. He is – this whole idea, like the and it makes me think of Donovan Mitchell. Donovan Mitchell was never the best player on those Jazz teams. Like when are we going to talk – or at least the most impactful player? All the data reflects that. Every And I know we have this mind's bias to, well, the game gets tight. You're putting the ball in Donovan Mitchell's hands, not in Rudy Gobert's hands. 
And that in, in and of itself places a higher emphasis on one side of the ball than the other side of the ball. And it also places a high, the highest emphasis on specifically what's going on with the ball in your hands. And it ignores that, hey, maybe actually there are all these other things that elevate the ball handler's ability to do the things that he does with the ball in his hands. We don't know in our mind, the optimal way to weigh those things, the data doesn't actually, the data doesn't care about how to weigh those things. It's just telling you what's happening. And for four or five years in Utah, the data told us that Rudy Gobert was the, the, the solar system in Utah. He was, he drove all of their success. And that's probably why it was so glaring when they failed in the playoffs when Rudy Gobert was quote unquote being exposed because without Rudy Gobert being his most impactful, that jazz team just wasn't very good. They needed Rudy Gobert to be his most impactful. So people always saw it as dunking on Rudy Gobert. Like, see, he's actually not that good a defender, but it's like, no, this actually exposed how mediocre or not mediocre, but how overrated the rest of the jazz players were because without Rudy Gobert being his best, they just fell off a cliff. Um, I just to, just to jump in real quick because I I think this is really interesting what you're saying. I I'm sure there are a lot of people who were saying some of these things. I probably I wasn't as involved in in Twitter and social <laughs> at the time. So I at least for me, my thought was never like I thought it was clear that Gobert was the most impactful player on those teams. Like I I don't think it was really even close. Like I don't even have the data in front of me, but I don't think it was like Mitchell and Gobert. Who's I think it was like clearly Gobert is the most impactful player on this team. I think that the issue for Gobert was that he could be schemed off the court, right? Like that was, and, and, and the fact that he schemed off the court doesn't mean that he's a bad defensive player. It showed how good a defensive player he was, how much of a, essentially a heliocentric defensive player he was. Um, and the fact that without him, if he could be schemed off the court, this team sucks. Like, you know, this team can't, not that they suck, but they, they, they're not, they're not anywhere near as good as they could be with Gobert on the court. So the, the issue to me with Gobert was like, could he just be schemed off the court because of his inability to shoot and really do much with the ball in his hands? I, I that to me, that was the point. And, and any conversation that was like, oh, but like Mitchell has the ball in his hands like late in the game. Like I, I, I hate person. That's a pet peeve of mine. And, it's, you know, I know we want to talk about pet peeves at some point. That's a pet peeve of mine because like we're talking about the last few minutes of a game. Like the, the, the it, by virtue of the idea of it being the last few minutes of the game, there's a first majority of minutes of the game. And, and those minutes count more than the last few minutes. So I, I, I just have never understood that at all. I think I think I just wanted to say, from my standpoint, that was the issue with Gobert, not that he wasn't that good a defender, he wasn't as impactful as Mitchell or any of the, or he didn't have the ball in his hands the last few minutes of the game. All that stuff is silly talk to me. It was just about the fact that he could be schemed off the court, which completely eradicated his impact, obviously, if he's not there. Yeah, really great point. And to uh, try to marry some data to it, the 2020-2021 Jazz... Uh, everybody remembers that team. They were the one seed. They lost to a Kawhi Leonard-less Clippers in the second round where Ty Lue basically said, we're going to play Terrence Mann at center uh, when they were down. They were down like 30 at home in game six against the Jazz. And they stuck Terrence Mann in at center and the, just had one of the most incredible comebacks you'll ever see. Everybody remembers that team. That year, the Jazz were 
plus 15.9 per hundred when Rudy Gobert played, minus two per hundred when Rudy Gobert sat. He was the only negative when he was off the court. Everybody else's off-court neg- off minutes were positive. On the other end of the spectrum, you had Donovan Mitchell. The Jazz were plus 7.9 per hundred when he played. They were plus 10.3 per hundred when he sat. So they were actually worse with him on the court than off it. Um, that's almost 20 points per hundred difference between the two players in court, in terms of net court differential. I'm hundred percent sure if you looked at EPM and you, or you looked at LeBron, any of the advanced data, they would also reflect that Gobert just was the most impactful player on that team. So yes, I, you know, to anybody who loves basketball, go watch that heat Timberwolves game. Great. Absolutely great. High quality basketball game. And it showcased Gobert skill set. But I did want to bring this up because, I think it's totally normal. You know, we were just, I wouldn't say we were laughing at it, but we were being a little dismissive of the idea that like, oh, like our eyes have a bias towards what Donovan Mitchell does versus Rudy Gobert does. I don't want to disparage any NBA fan whose intuition has that bias. I want to bring it back to the Knicks because I think the Knicks currently as constructed are very, very weighed towards emphasizing intuition. And what I mean by that is Tom Thibodeau, you know, for all the criticism he gets about his long shifts and lack of rotations and lack of creativity when it comes to lineups, he also is one of the most anal substituters or lineup builders in the entire NBA. And what I mean by that is if there is a deficiency that's loud and clashes with something that he believes is paramount to success in the NBA, he's going to build a lineup that checks that box. If you're struggling with size at the point of attack, he's going to play somebody who the macro data says is very impactful. He's going to play them less in favor of a worse basketball player who just happens to check that box. He very much is trying to construct lineups that perfectly deflect and negate a team's deficiencies. Of course, it starts with rim protection and defensive rebounding, but you go across the board and he's always doing those things. And so I want to turn it back to you because I think it's an actually very interesting discussion. The top-down data doesn't care about these things. It's only telling you why. It's not telling you why a guy's effective. It's telling you that he is effective. And I do think that the Knicks would be better off if they stopped caring so much about, oh, like they're really struggling with size at the three and just played the best three, you know, like, or, and and you can do that for a number of positions, a number of roles. I think if the Knicks stopped picking holes in the data and just said, okay, the data is clearly telling us that these lineups and these players are the most effective we're just going to throw them out there and at least try and at least trust that the data will be reinforced. And if it's not, you adjust from it, you but at least you'd have a baseline foundation that's backed in analytics and it gives you something to deviate from. Um, I want to get your thoughts on that. And I'd love to hear you explain more about the top down data and just why, why that's different than, you know, a coach or a fan who's like, watching with his eyes and is like, oh, the Knicks are clearly getting crushed on the glass. We need to add a power forward and a small forward who can help in that specific area. Yeah, these are great questions. Like, absolutely. Um, The thing I love is that about when you look at top-down data, 
is that there's so much that happens in the game of basketball that is almost imperceptible to the eye. We and it and data in terms of counting stats or other statistics that we're trying to uh, aggregate or accumulate it's really hard to account for things that don't happen. <laughs> um, it's really hard to account for things that don't happen. And if, let's say someone's defense is, let's say, the, the, what's the value of a stunt and recover, you know, that that causes a, an offensive player to not do something that he, he would have done if that player wasn't there, right? Like we, it's so, it's almost impossible. It's imperceptible. We can't say, you know, what would have happened if, you know, quickly didn't make that stunt and recovery and the player would have had an open driving lane and be able to get all the way to the basket. Like, honestly, we, we just so hard to see like a, whether that is happening or not happening and B what would happen in the case were quickly not on the court and someone else was on the court. We can't count those statistics. Like it's just not able to, we're not able to perceive them maybe with, you know, different types of technology that, you know, I'm sure the NBA is looking into, that will be something that we could count later on and we could go with more of a bottom-up approach. And when I say bottom-up, I mean by counting the things that happen and then adding them up into figuring out what's the sum in terms of impact. But right now, the best thing that we have is going top-down. And that's starting from the scoreboard. Um, that's starting by looking at the scoreboard. So as most of us know, you know, plus-minus is the point differential that a team has when a player is on the court. And we can basically, we use this to calculate the team's net rating when the player's on the court by converting it to per 100 possessions. We always talk about this kind of thing. Um, but then we can take, a, take it a step further by figuring out the player's on-off by comparing the team's net rating with him on the court versus the team's net rating with him off the court. So this is, you know, the on-off rating can tell us how much better or worse the team does when that player is playing. Jeff and I talk about this all the time. Most NBA fans talk about this all the time. Um, but if we talk about, and, and this is something that we talked about on the KFS live stream that we did recently, the concept of kind of causality, we can't draw any conclusions about causality for these on off ratings. So uh, for the example I like to use, and I, and I use this all the time is that at least when the last time I looked, this may not be true, but right now, but it, it's often true. The number two player in on off in the NBA is Contavious Caldwell Pope. And I think he was at like a plus 23.9 on off, which sounds insane. So that means that the Nuggets are like 24 possessions per every 100, 24 points per every 100 possessions better with KCP on the court than off the court. That's completely ridiculous, astronomical. Does that mean that KCP is the most valuable player in the league? Actually, KCP shares the court with this guy named Nikola Jokic about 90% of the time, 90% of the time they share the court together and Jokic is on off, which, you know, I'm not sure what the update it is, but last time I looked, it was like plus 24.3. So we know, you know, based on other ways to getting closer to figuring out like causality that Jokic is probably more responsible for the insane on off than KCP is, right? Um, so the main issue here is that who you share the court with matters a lot so when it comes to like plus minus and on off. And it's not just your teammates like KCP and Jokic, but it's the opponents that you play against. So, uh, you know, if a player is only on the court against, let's say the opponents like LA fitness crew, as, as GMAC likes to like to say when, when, you know, in the, at the, the end of the season, when Obi Toppin is out there dropping 45, apparently it's against the opponents, LA fitness crew. Um, and he destroys them. It doesn't tell us that he's better or more impactful than Jokic, um, who might be destroying Anthony Davis, for instance, who obviously we know is like 
completely decimated the Knicks the other night, um, it, 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 despite in the loss. So anyway, um, my point is just that we need to understand like what randomness or noise that happens. And oftentimes noise will be like luck, like the opponents happen to miss a bunch of threes when a player's on the court. But we want to know if the opponents miss threes because a player is on the court or if they just happen to miss threes. So the, the way that we do this is like a bunch of data crunching that is is probably very boring. Um, but we want to understand like comparisons and relationships amongst the players. And this is where the impact metrics come into play. So um, the impact metrics, what they try to do is they try to apply a filter that filters out the noisy or like clearly wrong data. And they do something, you know, called using a Bayesian prior, which I won't get into, um, but it helps identify whether there's like weird outliers and stuff that doesn't make sense. And then it gets rid of them. And then so it's more accurate. And that's what EPM does. So basically the point here is that when you look at this top down data, it's doing all these things again from the top down. It's looking, starting from the scoreboard and then it's looking on who's on the court and then it's trying to understand what is happening when those people are on the court and who is responsible for what is happening with those people on the court. So that is a, a much better way, in my opinion, to look at impact because it, it it is accounting for all these intangible things, these imperceptible things that our eye can't pick up. Or if it can pick up, it is only through like minute, minute, like studying film, looking at it over and over again, which we just can't do with every single play. And there are going to be things that are happening that no matter how much we look at the film, we won't notice. So we're, if we're not able to collect and aggregate each of those data points, we're never going to be able to understand the true value of a player. And that's why top-down data uh, or top-down analysis um, is often a, a more useful way to look at you know, the, uh, how much impact an NBA player has. I feel like that was probably a little comp like overly complicated, but that's the best way I could think of to talk about it. <laughs> well, no, I, I think you did a great job. You, the one thing you didn't mention was role, which I think gets yeah. totally underrated by, uh, you know, the average NBA fan. Um, and to your point about, I, I thought, I thought a really great point you made was like, there are all these little things happening on a basketball court all the time that there's no stat for. There's no, so, so, in the biased mind, those things get suppressed. The, the value or the impact of those things get suppressed. And I think one day we're going to have a more true understanding of how much a point is actually worth. I, you said it the other the other week. If a team of G-leaguers score, uh, stepped foot on the court against the best team in the NBA, they'd still score like 90 points per game. So we we have a way to count baskets but we also probably overrate the impact of individual scoring because most scoring frankly is replaceable if you put nba players on the court they're going to score um and i feel like that gets either ignored or discounted and people in their minds they're like those two points are worth two points but from an impact perspective they're actually not yeah, that, I, that's a great point because so actually uh, most most NBA fans have heard of PER or player efficiency rating. So player efficiency rating is often used and cited as like an, an impact metric when it is actually the exact opposite. It is a bottom up metric. So player efficiency rating is created by ascribing value to each of the different 
counting stats that we see on the court. So it says like a point is worth this, a rebound is worth this, an assist is worth this. But like like you said, how do we know what the value of that is? Because somebody else would score that same point or somebody else might get that same rebound or somebody else might get that same assist. So we don't actually know what the value is of those counting stats. And then we're also leaving out the whole host of other things that happen that, again, are imperceptible that we can't count. Um, so that's why player efficiency rating is so much worse or, or, you know, not as valuable, doesn't have as much predictive value, doesn't have as much descriptive value as something like, you know, EPM or LeBron, these other impact metrics. So that, 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 that's a great point. I just wanted to, to, to strike on that. Yeah. And the last thing you said is so important. Some stats tell you what happened. Some stats tell you what, tell you a version of what happened but also have more correlation with what's going to happen in the future. And the, you know, if there are baseball fans listening to this, you have ERA versus FIP, you know, you it's possible to have, and FIP is just like an adjusted ERA or a really good adjusted ERA that as you know, or maybe you don't, didn't know this, but I'm sure intuitively you did. A pitcher can only control so many things, you know, an ERA isn't ERA isn't telling you where the person pitched, who they pitched against, who their defenders were. Um, there's a lot of luck with hitting a baseball, where, where the baseballs happen to fall or what hole, if they happen to find a hole on ground balls. FIP is adjusting for how hard the balls you, give, you allow to be hit are given up for. They adjust for opponent. They adjust for field, yada, yada. So if you want to look at how good a season – I mean, me and actually I've actually argued about this before. But um, if you want to look at how good a season a guy has had – it's actually pretty reasonable to look at ERA because it's possible to be extremely lucky, but just for that stretch of time, be have had good results. But if you want to look at how good somebody is likely to be going forward, you want to look at this adjusted data and this more advanced data. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think those are all great points. And I know we kind of diverged away from the Knicks a little bit, but I think this is all extremely relevant to saying when the coach or coaches are looking at players impact and they're in the lineups. Uh, like Jeff said, you know, there's, there's multiple ways you can look at it. One way you can look at it is that there may be these deficiencies. Oh, you know, this player is too small, may get exploited in this specific way, or this player is too slow and may get exploited in this specific way. Um, and there's a lot of validity to that because, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, the impact data can't necessarily predict that's happening. Impact data is not nearly 100% accurate. Um, there's a ton of error in that. But at the same time, there's a lot to say with regard to like, here are the outcomes. Here are the outcomes when I throw these guys out there together across a huge sample size. Um, let's go with that. And then maybe one day we'll we'll look at the film and we'll be able to figure out Oh, okay. It's like it's this synergy that happens. This guy, these guys play off of each other this way. Um, there are all these synergistic effects that we can start to notice over time if we look hard enough. Um, but to me, it's like, hey, let's get the impact, and then we'll figure out what the why later. <laughs> and that's generally my <laughs> my perspective. Well, we we've seen when you do it the other way, when you look at lineup construction as feeling out how best to check boxes that you think are important, you could end up doing something like starting Alfred Payton 71 out of 72 games because you need his size at the point of attack. So look, <laughs> I, as, as, 
as a as a person who has deep deep dove into certain aspects of professional gambling, I can promise you that in almost any game or any system that requires a strategy, having a baseline foundation that is optimal that you can then deviate from is much better, much better than operating purely on feel, you know? And so that's what you always want to do. You need to, you know, in poker and chess, it's called GTO game theory, optimal, all the good, all the elite chess players, all the elite poker players, these people all have a system and they know what makes them truly special is they have this system, you know, that locked down, they have it memorized, they've studied, they know all the moves, but they also have a feel for, okay, I actually, I think this is a good time to deviate. I do not see Tom Thibodeau as operating on any sort of optimal like baseline and then, oh, I'm just going to deviate a little bit from here. He is very much flying by the seat of his pants and just, okay, we're playing these guys this week and I actually think rebounding is going to be the most important thing. So I'm going to go with my best rebounders. I feel very strongly that the Knicks would be better off if they went with a more data-driven lineup construction or uh, rotation construction and gave Tom Thibodeau the freedom because, look, I'm saying this, but I want to be very clear. I do trust Tom Thibodeau's basketball mind. I do trust him in certain spots to understand better than I would, better than most people would, what is required. I think that he has things that only experience can give you. But I think there needs to be a little bit tighter of a leash on where what the Knicks' baseline is, what, what they're starting from. If Tom Thibodeau looks at a matchup and says, I, I'm not sure what Emmanuel quickly can do here. I think his size is going to be exploited. I, I'm not going to have the ball in his hands very much. I'd probably still disagree with that. But if the baseline was, okay, quickly is going to play 30 minutes tonight, just sometimes I'm going to fudge that a little bit, I would be I would trust that a lot more, and I think the Knicks would be a lot more successful. Yeah, 100% agree. And the last thing I wanted to say, just something you said really struck me. When it comes to having kind of a baseline sort of, of, of premise that you start from or, or um, equation, so to speak, I, I think that this is something I want to talk about in a future episode of Hot Hand Theory. We definitely don't have time to go get into it now, but um, there is... About 50 years, uh, you know, half a century of research that is very conclusive when it comes to human judgment in terms of prediction prediction versus algorithmic judgment. And it is a clean sweep in every single field (laughs) that has been studied that algorithmic judgment is superior to human judgment. And that and, and this is to say, like, it goes so far as to say that when we're talking about when I'm talking about algorithmic judgment we think of like complex algorithms like machine learning techniques and all these kind like even simple linear very simple uh every day you know we can do the math from our eighth grade math class those kinds of techniques in terms of making predictive judgments are still better than feel-based human judgments in a very consistent basis like it's it's pretty incredible and the poor like the reason for that is due to the noise and bias in human judgment, not because algorithmic judgments are so much better, um, are, are so amazing, like they, they, they end up being like pretty good, 
But really the issue is that human judgment is like extremely flawed due to noise and bias that we see. And, and, and we see that in sports on a consistent basis. So it's completely applicable and something I want to get into uh, in a future in a future episode.